you have a Bible with you, open up to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, we're looking this morning at a passage of Scripture between verses 18 and 25. I've entitled this morning's message as, The Type of Person the World Hates. The Type of Person the World Hates. John chapter 15, we'll start in verse 18 and work our way down to verse 25. Here's what the Apostle John writes Speaking for Christ, of course, is the one speaking, John writing, Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of their sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also." If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Father, we bow our heads and our hearts before you this morning, and we pray that you would give us insight into the words of Christ, who as he talks about persecution issues a stern warning to every follower of Christ that just as Jesus was persecuted, we too shall be persecuted. Help us to embrace these truths. Help us to prepare for future difficulty and help us to delight in the salvation that is provided freely in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, the persecution of Christians began in the New Testament. The initial main enemy of Christianity was the Jewish nation. King Herod the Great tried to have the baby Jesus killed in Bethlehem. One of King Herod's sons had John the Baptist beheaded. The Pharisees joined together with the Sadducees to have Jesus crucified. Saul of Tarsus, before his conversion, was known for participating in Stephen's martyrdom as well as persecuting Christians in Jerusalem and in Damascus. The first official persecution of Christians by the Roman government came later at the end of the first century during the reign of Emperor Nero. He was known for arresting Christians, cruelly torturing them, and oftentimes would have them thrown to wild animals. He even had Christians dipped in wax, lit them on fire like a torch, and then had their burning bodies light up his evening dinner parties. In the second century, and in the first half of the third century, official persecution of Christians was sporadic. The first empire-wide persecution of Christians took place under the emperor Decius in AD 250. He issued an edict 
requiring everyone to offer a sacrifice to the gods and to the governor and to obtain that certificate attesting that they had done so. Those Christians who refused were arrested, imprisoned, tortured, and then executed. The most violent persecution of Christians began in A.D. 303 during the reign of Diocletian. This persecution was nothing less than an all-out attempt to rid the world of Christianity. This emperor ordered that all churches be destroyed, that all Bibles were to be burned, and that all Christians were to be sacrificed to pagan deities. Obviously, this did not happen to the fullest, but it was definitely a gruesome time for Christians. Eventually, the Roman Catholic Church replaced Imperial Rome as the dominant power during the Middle Ages, and the persecution of Christians heated up again. There were the horrors of the Inquisition. There was St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre and the English Reformation martyrs under Bloody Mary. More recently, believers have been brutally persecuted and killed under the communistic regime and by the Islamic State. It has been estimated by some historians that in all of church history, roughly 70 million Christians have been killed for their profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And two-thirds of those 70 million have died at the beginning of the last century until now. That means that over the last 120 years, enough Christians have been martyred to match the population of New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, and Houston combined. Unknown to most Christians today is the estimate that an average of 100,000 Christians have been killed every year since 1990 to the present. You may even remember that on Easter Sunday of this year, three churches and three hotels in Sri Lanka were bombed by suicide bombers, and these coordinated attacks, over 500 people were injured and 259 people were killed. Well, why am I telling you all of this this morning? It's because Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Jesus said, remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. What we are learning from Jesus in this passage is that we ought to expect persecution. We should expect the world to hate us. And if they persecuted Jesus, they will persecute you. The warning which the Lord Jesus is giving in this passage is much needed by young believers today. You see, the inexperienced Christian might think that the hatred of the world against him is a rebuke about how he is living. He may even think that he is to blame for it. He imagines that if he were only kinder, more gentle, more humble, or more Christ-like, then the hatred from the unbeliever would be diminished. But that is a terrible mistake. The truth is, the more Christ-like we are, the more we will be scorned, and we will be mocked, and we will be persecuted. 
And the conclusive proof of this is found in the treatment which was given to Jesus when he was in the world. He was despised and rejected of men. If then the purest love which has ever been manifested on earth, if goodness incarnate was hated by men in general, if brighter his love shone, the fiercer the enemy became, then how can we expect to be admired and esteemed by the world? Surely none will entertain the horrible thought that any of us can surpass the purity and the love and the grace of the Son of God. And so if he was ridiculed, if he was chided, and if he was brutally attacked, then we should expect the same. The Christian faith offers you peace with God, but not peace with the world. The Christian faith offers you forgiveness from God, but not friendship with the world. The Christian faith offers you a place with God, but you will become public enemy number one with the world. This morning, I want to talk to you about the type of person that the world hates. The world hates Christ and all those who've been transformed by Christ. The, hate, the world hates the type of person who has a different nature and who has a different master and who has a different father. So let's start this morning with the world hating the person who has a different nature. If you are taking notes, your first blank there, number one, the world hates the person who has a different nature. And then A says, the world first hated Christ. Verse 18, again, Jesus says, if the world hates me, you know that it has hated me. If the world hates you, rather, excuse me, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now, we've been looking at in John 13 all the way through John 18 what's called the Upper Room Discourse, where Jesus eventually traveled over to the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before he was abducted, and the next day he would be crucified. And Jesus had been encouraging his disciples to stay strong. Even when he departs to go and be with his Father in heaven, he wants to encourage his disciples while they're still here on earth. And so in chapter 13, Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And in chapter 14, Jesus told his disciples that he was going to prepare a place for them. And in chapter 15, Jesus is calling his followers to abide in him in order to bear much fruit. And now at the end of chapter 15, Jesus is warning his disciples that this will not be easy. Being a Christian was never supposed to be easy. And part of the reason it's not easy is because the world will hate you. When Jesus says, if the world hates you, he does not mean the world may or may not hate you. The original language here expresses a condition in which the assumption is that the world will hate you. In other words, in the original language, it's really not so much a matter of if as it is a matter of when. Jesus might as well have been saying when the world hates you. The word, word, the word world here is the word cosmos. In this context, it refers to the evil fallen world. The world is a system made up of unregenerate people who are controlled by Satan. 
You read those kind of references even in John 12. If you look back a couple of chapters, John 12, 31, he says, now this is the judgment, uh, now, now is the judgment of this world, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Or look at John 14, 30. Jesus says in John 14, 30, I will no longer talk much with you for the, the, the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. Look at John, uh, 1 John 5.19, or maybe just listen, 1 John 5.19 says, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And so what we're learning from John, both in the gospel and in his epistles, that the world is and has always been against Christ. The world and its thinking has always been opposed to God. The evil system of the world has never valued Jesus Christ for one second. And Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has already hated me. Earlier in John 7, 7, Jesus said, the world cannot hate you, but if it hates me, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Jesus is basically saying, it's not you, it's me. If I am in you, then the world will hate you because the world has already hated me. And why does the world hate Jesus so much, you might ask? Because Jesus calls out the world, Jesus confronts the world, Jesus calls them sinners, and that the world is following their father, the devil. The unrighteous works of the world are being called out by Christ throughout his time on earth and throughout the Bible. And we understand the unrighteous works of the world would include sexual immorality, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, and idolatry. In fact, in that list of 1 Corinthians 6, it goes on to say that neither the people who practice these sexual sins, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so when the Bible says that the world hates Jesus, it talks about non-religious people who are committing non-religious sins like the ones just mentioned. But it also talks about the people of the world who are from a religious background who commit religious sins, like the Jews. I mean, the Jews weren't known always as being notorious sinners in their immorality, though there were periods of time where they were struggling. Here in the first century, these Jews were being overly pious. They were being overly self-righteous. And so they're committing religious sins like, like, like the ones that Jesus addresses earlier in John 10, 30. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. The Jews pick up stones again to stone him. So the Jews wanted to kill Jesus, and they wanted to stone him for what? Well, they wanted to stone him because that text goes on to say in John 10, 32, Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which one of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, and it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. So what we're learning there is that the Jews were not accusing Jesus of doing something wrong. They were accusing him of saying something wrong. They were not going to stone him for his miracles. They were not going to stone him for his good works. They were not going to stone him for being nice. They were not going to stone him because he said that he was, uh, th that he was um, that he, well, they were going to stone him because he said that he was one with the Father. 
So what we're seeing is the persecution began to move towards, uh, away from just what was going on externally and what was being taught by Christ. In the very next chapter, Jesus claimed to be the resurrection and the life, and then he went on to raise Lazarus from the dead, and then we read in John eleven fifty three. so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So what are we learning from all of this? If, so, it, it, so you can hate Christ if you're not religious and are committing moral sins. So what I'm trying to do is establish there's two types of worldliness. There's the type of the world that are just living like heathens. They sin all day, every day, and they hate Christ because Christ confronts their sin. Then there's the other type of person who hates Christ who's a religious person, and they hate Christ because they deny his divinity, and they hate Christ because they deny that Jesus is the Son of God. And as a Christian, you might get, be persecuted by both sides. You're going to be persecuted by people who want to exercise their sin to the max in the world, and they don't like you because you say the Bible says don't do that. And you'll equally be persecuted by religious people who say, well, the, there's more than one way to heaven. It's not just through Jesus alone. There's other gods that you can follow. There's other people that you can follow. And you and I will be in the crosshairs of both those who are sinning with immorality and those who are sinning with self-righteousness. Both sides hate Christ. And they hate the cross, and they hate those who follow the cross. And they might hate you not just because of what you're doing, they might hate you because of what you're saying. And that's exactly what Jesus says in the second part of verse, uh, of, of, of verse we read verse 18, verse 19. It says, the world also hates you. So we know the world hated Jesus first. Verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before you. And now look at verse 19 that the world also hates you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world also hates you. The Bible says that we should love one another, not hate one another. And yet we read in 1 John 3, 11 through 13, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So in other words, in that context, we're realizing, hey, the world's going to hate you just because you're righteous, not because you're going to be doing something wrong, not because you're going to be sinning against Christ. It's not because you're going to embrace an aberrant theology. They're just going to hate you because you're going to be more like Abel than Cain. You're going to come to God and worship him through the sacrifice of Christ and him alone. And Cain represents the world who's going to hate you. And they're going to come kill you. The world hates you simply for doing righteous deeds. And when you do righteous deeds, you're exposing the evil deeds of the world. That's like when you're reading and obeying God's word, the world is not then their works of darkness are exposed. When you're delighting in God and the world is delighting in their sin, their sin is exposed. When you are treasuring God and the world is treasuring their sin, their sin is exposed. When you're pursuing Christ and the world is pursuing the desires of their flesh, the desires of their flesh are being exposed. And so in all of this, the world, because they do have a conscience, realize that you are walking in the light and they are walking in the darkness, and so they hate you for it. Just like Cain hated Abel, 
Abel did the right thing. He made the type of sacrifice that God called him to. Cain provided his own sacrifice. God accepted Abel's sacrifice. He didn't accept Cain's sacrifice. Cain kills Abel, and thus is the story of the persecution of Christianity from then on. They'll hate you because you do the right thing. It used to be that as a Christian, you would be respected. As a pastor, you would have a place in the public square of the community for standing up on God's word, and people would revere you for it. Today, they mock you for it. They laugh at you. They scoff your moral position. They hate your exclusivity of faith in Jesus Christ alone. And they hate you, and they hate you real bad. Let me give you three more reasons why, just in case you're not encouraged enough this morning. Why do they hate you? Three quick reasons. Number one, because you now have a different affection. You have a different affection. People who party like people who party with them. Misery loves company. Like attracts like. Druggies attract other druggies. Violent people are surrounded by violent people. Drunks are surrounded by drunkers. Immorality goes with immorality. And to be friends with the world is to be at enmity with God. In fact, James 4.4 says this about worldly people. James 4.4, you adulterous people, do you not know that a friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So you can't have it both ways. You can't have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. You can't serve two masters. You must make a choice. And what's happened in our world today is a lot of churches are starting to back off of moral purity and good doctrinal teaching because they want to be accepted by the world instead of persecuted by the world. Well, I'm here to tell you, this church ain't changing. This church is staying grounded on the Word of God. We're not doing so because we want persecution. We're doing so because we want to be pure, and we want to honor Christ, and we want to love Him, and we don't care what the world thinks about us. We're not trying to be popular. We're not trying to be accepted. We're not trying to be liked by anybody. We're trying to be faithful. And guess what? Our affections have changed. We love Christ more. We love His Word more. We love his purity more. We love his sacrifice more. We're not going to give up God. We're not going to give up his word. We're not giving up Christ. We're sticking with God's word. This is what the word says in 1 John. You know this passage well, chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. You see, I want to be a part of something that lasts forever. I want to be a part of a faith that stands firm in the midst of adversity and that will last forever and deliver me unto eternal heaven than to flirt around with this world to punt my morality and convictions in order to be loved by the unregenerate, 
depraved person. The world doesn't like you because you have a different affection. You have a new focus. You have a new devotion. You have a new loyalty. You have a new allegiance. You have a new love, a new fondness, a new friend, and his name is Jesus. And so we have a new affection. That's part of why the world hates us, but the world also hates us because you now, number two, have a different purpose. You have a different purpose. When you were living in the world, your purpose was to have fun. Your purpose was to pursue carnal pleasures. Your purpose was to achieve worldly success. Your purpose was to obtain fame and fortune. But now your whole life has changed. And as a Christian, your purpose is to live for God. And your purpose is to bear fruit for God. And you are now in service to God. You are an ambassador for Christ. You are a witness to the gospel. You are a voice crying out in the wilderness, just like John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as you proclaim the word of God, the world's going to hate you for it. Jesus said in John 17, verse 14, in his high priestly prayer, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. And so as Christians, our job is to stay in the world, but not to be of the world. Our job is to let our light shine. You are not of this world. You are no longer a part of the kingdom of darkness, but you now in Christ walk in the kingdom of light. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. You know what so many people are doing? They're hiding it under a bushel. No! Don't let Satan blow it out, right? You remember the song growing up, but that's just what's happening. People are taking the light, they're taking the word of God, and they're making excuses for it. And they're taking parts of it out that would offend somebody. And they're starting to excuse, I don't want to talk about that. I I don't want to mention that. Oh, it's not up to me, that's up to God. And they just back away, back away, back away. Whereas the Bible says, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Listen to me this morning, church. Your job is not to go with the flow. Your purpose is not to follow the trends of the culture. Your purpose is not to jump on the bandwagon. Your purpose is to stand for Christ. Your purpose is to swim up current. Your purpose is to let the love of Christ shine through you in all that you do. You have a different affection. You have a different purpose. And third, you have a different joy. Remember, your joy doesn't come from sin. It comes from sustained obedience. Your joy doesn't come from worldly pleasures. It comes from worshiping your greatest treasure, who is Jesus. Your joy is not wrapped up in circumstances. It's fixed upon Christ. You don't get excited about the world gets excited about. You don't cherish what the world cherishes, and you don't delight in what the world delights in. Your joy comes from keeping Christ's commandments and from abiding in his love. I mean, look back earlier in this chapter. We spent so much time in John 15, where Jesus said, I've been writing these things to you in verse 9. And then he says in verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love, I have spoken these things to you so that my joy 
will be in you and that your joy will be made full. You want joy? It comes from Christ. You want joy? Walk in obedience. You want joy? Keep Christ's commandments. They're not supposed to be burdensome. 1 John 5, 3. They're a pleasure. It's a privilege. It's an honor. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit that dwells in every blood-bought Christian to keep God's commandments. And yeah, we fall. And yes, we stumble. And we understand that. But overall, we're reminding our thinking today by Christ's message to us through this passage that this world is going to pass away. Our sins are going to pass away. Only Christ will last. Only pleasure in him will last forever which is why we want to walk that path of life that David describes in John, excuse me, Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What a great reminder today that the world hates people who have a different affection, a different purpose and a different joy. I wonder if those three things are true of you today that you could say, you know what? I don't want what I used to want. I mean, I used to want that. I don't even want that anymore. I wonder if you could say, you know what? I have a totally different purpose, how I spend my time and how I spend my money and how we spend our family time together. We have a different purpose. We're on a different trajectory. We're, we're, we're in a boat on a different river. We're, we're heading in a completely different direction. And you know what? Our pleasure comes from being on our knees. Our pleasure comes from getting up when the alarm clock goes off in the morning and to go meet with God. Our pleasure comes from hearing sermons and podcasts and worship music that would lift our hearts to heaven. Our pleasure comes from worshiping Jesus at church. Our pleasure comes from serving Christ and serving others and loving others. That's what gives me joy. That other stuff will leave you high and dry. And you know it's true. If you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, you don't want the world anymore. You know that it leads to a dead end. And so what kind of person does the world hate? The world hates the person who has a different nature, but the world also hates the person, number two, the world hates the person who has a different master, who has a different master. Verse 20, here we read this, remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. The world hates the person who has a different master. A, your first blank under the second heading says, you are no greater than your master. Jesus is simply giving an illustration in which the social fabric of Israel could easily relate. These two individuals a master and a servant, are from different statuses. You have a master, you have a servant. They are on different levels of responsibility. The master's responsibility is to protect the servant and to provide for the servant and to be fair with his servant, while the servant's responsibility is to serve his master and to be loyal to his master and to be diligent in carrying out the master's directives. There is no doubt that in the social structure of the first century, the master was considered greater than his servant. He had a greater education. He had a greater experience in managing the estate. And he surely had a greater influence in the community. Jesus is saying kindly, but clearly, that a servant is not greater than his master. We heard Jesus use the same logic in John 13, 16, when he said, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. 
So Jesus, again, is using the illustration to say, if they persecuted me and I'm greater than you and I'm more powerful than you and I'm more pure than you, and if they're going to persecute me, then let it be known to you, they will also persecute you. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If they're going to persecute the master, better be sure that they're going to persecute the servant who serves his master. Your next blank says that exactly you will be persecuted just like your master. You will be persecuted just like your master. Again, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Do you think it is possible for Jesus to be persecuted, but for you not to face any persecution? Do you think that's possible? Is it possible that Jesus would have been scorned, that Jesus would have been mocked, that Jesus would have been crucified, and yet somehow in your life, you're going to come to Christ, walk with Christ, love Christ, evangelize for Christ, and never face a day of persecution. Jesus says, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If Jesus was persecuted, if he was oppressed, if he was abused, if he was maligned, if he was badgered, if he was harassed, if he was afflicted, if he was tormented, so will every servant of the master be. And how will they treat the master? That will be how they treat you. The Bible says in Matthew 10, turn there with me if you will, Matthew 10, 24, 25, Jesus says, again, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Now, in that passage, Jesus is saying that a disciple is not above his teacher, and a servant is not above his master, and the goal of the disciple is to be like his teacher, and the goal of the servant is to be a faithful extension of his master. So if the world is going to falsely accuse the master's character, which is what they do, if they are going to falsely accuse Jesus, they will falsely accuse you. What did they falsely accuse Jesus of? Well, in Matthew 10, 25, we just read it. They accused him of being of the house of Beelzebul. That's another word for the devil. They're accusing Jesus of being Satan. They're accusing Jesus, the Pharisees are, of being a child of the devil. And if Jesus is a devil, then you must be a demon. If Jesus is somehow acting like Satan, then you must be one of his minions. If they did not think well of him, they will not think well of you. If they persecuted Jesus, then they will persecute you. Now, you may think, but I'm a good person, and I want to be well thought of by people. How in the world can they think ill of me if I am a moral person? Jesus said in Luke 6, 26, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. In other words, Jesus is saying, oh, actually, you don't want everybody saying nice things about you. If everybody in this world is saying really nice things about you, then maybe you're kind of like one of those people who praised false prophets who probably embraced everybody and told everybody they're going to heaven, 
and told everybody that whatever you want to do is fine as long as you're following your heart, which is the phrase I'm getting tired of hearing on the Hallmark Christmas movies right now, because when you're following your heart, you're not following God's word so much of the time, right? So what he's saying is you don't necessarily want to expect that everybody in this world are saying nice things about you. If they are, it means basically you're probably not living for God to the extent that you can and should be living for God. One of the characteristics of a false prophet is that they would tell the people what they wanted to hear instead of telling them the truth. False prophets would tickle their ears. False prophets would be praised even by unbelievers. And unbelievers would accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They would turn away from listening to the truth and they would wander into myths. But we have been called to be sober-minded and to endure suffering and to do the work of an evangelist. And when you do that, you will be persecuted. You start doing the work of evangelist by telling people in your neighborhood and in your family and at work that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven and there's salvation found in no one else, you will be persecuted. They will not embrace you. They will not kiss you on the cheek. They may even resend their Christmas presents they were going to get you. Are you telling them there's only one way to heaven? It's through Jesus? Now listen, I'm not saying you got to be you know, spitting fire like I am this morning, hellfire and brimstone everywhere you look. Turn or burn, all of you. I, I'm not saying, that's, that's my job to do on a Sunday, all right? But on a Monday through a Friday, I think that you can be winsome. I think that you can be kind. I think that you can be loving. I think that you can bring Christmas cookies. All right, I think you can do all that stuff. But with that sugar, better be a little content. With all of that love and all those niceties, better be a backbone. With everything else, there better be somewhere your articulation of the beauty of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, it's not worth it. I mean, it's either all in or all out. But when you put one foot in the church and one foot in the world, Jesus says, I will spew you out of my mouth to the church of Laodicea. I don't want you lukewarm he said to them in Revelation 3. And so you need to preach that Jesus is the Christ. Now listen to me. You are not moral in the world's eye if you speak against immorality. Do you get what I'm saying? People do not think good of you when you speak against sexual immorality. But God's called you to uphold a standard of purity and holiness. You are not holy in the world's eyes if you speak against unholiness. You are not a good person in the world's eyes if you condemn sinful practices which the world upholds as necessary expressions of their worldview. So the world is not going to think of you as a good person. They're going to think of you as one who offers hate speech. They're going to think of you as a villain. They're going to think of you as a hypocrite. They're going to think of you as an anti-cultural, progressive person, and they'll hate you for it, and they will persecute you for it. And Jesus is warning us in this passage to be prepared for that. That's why we preach the whole counsel of God's Word. 
I almost entitled this message, The Sermon You Will Not Hear at Lakewood Church by Joel Osteen. I didn't title it that way, so don't judge me. I said I almost entitled it that way. But you're going to hear this message right here because it's all through the Bible. It is all through God's Word. Turn with me to the Beatitudes of Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, and the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Couldn't be more clear from the words of Jesus himself again in Matthew 5, 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Jesus says, that's when you're blessed. That's when you're blessed is when you're standing up for Christ and people are going to persecute you for it. You may be persecuted by the world, but you will be blessed by God. You may be reviled by the world, but you will be rewarded by God. You may be slandered by the world, but you will be approved by God. You may be disregarded by the world, but you will be favored by God. Jesus even goes as far to say in Matthew 5, 12, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So you may be persecuted, but you will also be blessed. And you can rejoice that you are honored to suffer for the sake of his name. And your reward is not in this world, it's in the next one. And we don't live in the here and now, we live for heaven. That's why Peter says something very similar in 1 Peter 4, 13 and 14, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of the glory and of God rests upon you. Earlier, Peter and John said this when they were arrested in Acts 5.41. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of his name. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12.10, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. You know what? We're blessed when we're persecuted, you may think again, well, well, what if I'm not being persecuted? Again, I'm not asking you to go out and seek persecution this week. That's not what I'm asking you to do. I'm just asking you to be faithful and to be fruitful in your walk. And I guarantee you that the more faithful and the more fruitful you are in your life day after day and week after week, at some point in your life, you will face great persecution. And it might just be a comment and it might be the loss of a business deal, and it might be the shunning of a certain position at work or a certain school or a certain uh, purchase you were trying to make, but you will be persecuted. And I'm saying in that moment, count it a blessing. In that moment, count it as something that, that God is encouraging your own faith to say, you know what? I never knew that I would be persecuted for this, but if this is what it means to be a Christian, so be it. I mean, we've got to understand that in this culture we live in, it's not like it's going to get better. It's not like it's going to get nicer. It's not like all of a sudden, you know, people are going to invite you in the public square to share your exclusive principle um, convictions that are based on the Bible. 
And so I just want to encourage you as we spend some time in this text this week and next week, it's because Jesus came. I was, I was really wrestling with like, man, how am I going to preach these couple of sermons on persecution? It's like we're supposed to be the seasons filled with, with joy, you know? And it's like supposed to be like, tis the season to be jolly. And it's like, I'm like, I'm like, I was even tempted. This is how Satan works. I was even tempted. Maybe I shouldn't preach this part on persecution. At Christmas time? Come on, Lord. Maybe I'll just skip over this. Find something real pretty to preach on. But you know what? God brought us right here, right now to be reminded of where true joy, true blessing comes. That baby that was born, that we're celebrating all throughout this season, was persecuted, and he was killed, and he was raised from the dead, and he ascended, and he's at the right hand of the Father, and he's interceding for you at this very moment, and he says that you're blessed when you're persecuted for my name's sake. Be encouraged by that. We'll continue again next week. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be faithful to your word, to see the truths that we see here. And while I'm right in the middle, even of this first sermon, not even getting to one ray of hope, where we saw at the end of verse 20, that if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. God, we're reminded in that section that there's always a remnant, that there's always somebody listening, that in a room of a hundred, there may be one, that in a crowd of a thousand, there may be ten, but there's always somebody that you're touching by your sovereign grace and that when they hear a message like this, their ears perk up because they know we're not tickling this morning. We're truth-telling this morning and that we want to look to the words of Christ and we want to look at your gospel and we want to be those kind of men and women who would say, you know what, I'm with Christ. I'm going with Christ no matter what because I know everything that this world has to offer will pass away, but God's kingdom will never be outdone. God's kingdom will never end. His dominion will be from generation to generation to generation. And even at this moment, there's angels in heaven, myriads of myriads worshiping the lamb who was slain and who was risen from the dead. We know what the end of the Bible teaches. And so we want to walk by faith right here in the middle of our epitaph here on earth. Lord, we want to walk as those who love you and who trust in you and who are con con we were converted, Lord, to be changed, that we would have greater conviction to live in this life, not for the world and what the world offers, but for Christ. So would you do a special work of grace in our hearts, in our lives, through your scripture, on a message and a, and a theme that we'll be going through about the persecution that we face. May we count it as a joy and a privilege as we are walking closer to Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.